we come back together this morning, we'll wrap up our uh, study on relationships, most of it done at, at 20,000 feet, uh, I acknowledge. Uh, but hopefully what we've tried to do is uh, put our understanding of each kind of human interaction we have, first and foremost in the context of what it means to be created in the image of God and embracing the incredibly practical doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, although not easily understood as we try and battle how God can be one and three at the same time, uh, that's unlikely to fit into our brains this side of glory, even maybe on the other side to our complete satisfaction. But nonetheless, what we know is that for us to make them indicates that we, existing in community with other human beings, is an exceedingly important part of what it means to be created in the image of God. And learning how to interact with one another in the way that the Trinity interacts with itself is a part of our forward progress and growth in understanding of what it means to be created in the image of God. And in the midst of the difficulty of sin, we know that there are additional complications to relationship. The question as to what the other person is thinking and what their motivations are genuinely challenge our trust uh, and our relationships. But nonetheless, Christ comes in order not simply that we could be saved, but so that we could again, launch into, with new resources in the Holy Spirit, this great project, this great gift of being image bearers and being engaged in relationship. And we've talked a little bit about how, because I can't control what you're doing, I can simply control myself, there is an aspect, well, I'd like to the only person I have any real hope of controlling through the Holy Spirit is myself, is uh, this idea that there are certain realities of duties that we have to one another. Uh, I don't know that I've used that word too often in this sermon series, but because you are created in the image of God, I have certain duties towards you. You have certain honor, certain uh, preference, uh, privilege. You have rights. You have dignity. And I have duties to encourage and respect those realities of who you are. It is what happens when we unpack the Ten Commandments and understand that I have duties towards my wife. I have duties towards others. And that taking their sexuality in a way that is not in the context of covenant relationship is an abuse of them is something that is not mine to take, nor in that context theirs to give. I have a duty not to harbor bad feelings towards my neighbor because they have more than I do, which we know leads to temptations of hoping that they might fall and then taking far much, too much delight when they do. I have a duty to pray for their good and not to steal from them. Not to speak lies against them. I have, as a child, 
a responsibility and a duty to honor my father and my mother. Are they always worthy of honor? No, but apparently that isn't a uh, requirement. That even in the midst of my parents' sinfulness and brokenness, that I have a duty to honor them. And so we unpack this understanding that as people created in the image of God, I have the ability and the opportunity, the duty. As Proverbs 3.27 puts it, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is within your power to do so. And so this morning, as we uh, bring to a conclusion our sermon series on relationships, we'll jump from this question that hopefully was raised in your mind. What does it mean when Proverbs says, to whom it is due, and how would I determine it? And so we will begin by turning to Hebrews chapter 4, and we will read uh, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. I providentially did not put one of my little, what do you call it, flags in, so give me a moment. I would not win any Bible sword drills with this Bible. Pages stick together. This is not a good choice. Verses 14 through 16, hear now God's word. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us alone, that you are a God who restores and rebuilds that which he designed and created. We thank you for sending your Son, our King. We thank you for his love and compassion for us. We thank you for what he is building in and through us and in his world. We thank you for the spirit that strengthens and encourages and applies all these great truths. We ask this morning that as we again delve into your word that we might be encouraged in our faith. Encouraged to sympathize and be compassionate with one another. And Lord, we ask that whatever is said this morning that is not true or useful for the building up of your people, May those words quickly be forgotten. Amen. So, we often point to uh, those great events uh, when trauma hits a community, right? So, you know, uh, a tornado hits a community in Kansas, uh, and usually uh, a mobile home park is involved, Uh that's a bad stereotype, but there's just enough of those where it always feels like at least one of those 
gets hit every year by a tornado. Uh, or, or the great floods that have come because of various uh, either uh, hurricanes or uh, massive snow melts. My stars last uh, spring was unbelievable in the number of floods that happened in the upper Midwest. Uh, communities that hadn't been flooded in hundreds and hundreds of years, or at least where the water table, even before those communities were there, had, hadn't reached in years. And what we always love to see is people coming out and, um, and helping one another. And, uh, and they all bind together and people are, are finding shelter. And we, we really take encouragement that as often as we feel disconnected and unsupported and uh, not very much in community, that at that moment... There is community. And I certainly wouldn't want to completely uh, disregard that. But uh, when I was a child, I had a tendency, and thankfully I didn't end up being a serial killer, but there's something about anthills, right, that seem to look like they need firecrackers uh, to see how they might explode. And so, uh, you know, I had this tendency, and because red ants are really not nice to have around the farm, and you want them a little further out because they bite. So as a civic act of care for my family, I was willing uh, to help address the ant issues in our property uh, in Wyoming. And, but what you notice is when you start blowing up an anthill is all the ants rush to try and fix the problem. They take care of one another. It's a self-preservation mode. When it really hits the fan, when we are facing unbelievable devastation, we need to band together. We now know that we cannot exist without the person next to me. I actually have to talk to the person whose house is next to me because I don't have electricity. I don't want to completely dismiss it, but when we talk about biblical acts of kindness and connection, of doing good to those to whom I have the ability to do good, we don't want to overestimate basic self-preservation in a disaster and suggest that that is necessarily an indication of what it means to be created in the image of God and to care for the other. Because... Oftentimes, when I am at my most comfortable, I am the least compassionate. There is no Kate, drama in our lives. There is no reason for you to be homeless. There's no reason for you to be drug addicted. There's no reason for you to be without a job. Things are well. I'm settled. Why aren't you is more my mindset. That in times of prosperity and relative comfort, at least for myself, I become the least compassionate and the least likely to sympathize with the needs of those going through great difficulties. This morning, I want us to look and unpack this great calling and this great promise and this great hope we have. To have a high priest, to have one who stands before the Father, who sympathizes with our weaknesses. But first we'll look at compassion, a definition of compassion, how that extends to one another, and then how at the root of compassion is a fundamental understanding of what sympathy is and the best historic classical meaning construction of that word. Why sympathy is so much uh, a word in need of restoration. Far more than sentimentality, it is a powerful word. And then we'll look at the king and what we can do 
in some of our relationships that model, that, that model, that embrace the great opportunity for compassion and the great richness of what it means to be able to sympathize with another. Compassion doesn't often come easy for someone uh, that we don't know or understand or we fear. We haven't always been good at compassion. And we grieve over those moments when we then in reflection realize there was an opportunity to be compassionate and we failed. Compassion is defined as a sympathetic consciousness with a desire to alleviate that which is causing the pain. I bring up those instances inside the church because I desire for us in ever greater degrees, as Steve so wonderfully prayed for us, to be different than we were 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, let alone yesterday. To encourage it and to remind us that when we are called to show compassion, not just in trauma to ourselves, but in trauma to another, Maybe you've experienced where the church has been less compassionate than we could be. I remember standing around a coffee time at our church in 1987 when those who had and were victims of AIDS came to Washington, D.C. to encourage the uh, funding of research into this illness that was we thought at that point largely uh, restricted to uh, homosexual males and drug users, people that we weren't necessarily compassionate towards within the walls of our church there in McLean. And we're standing around the coffee time and jokes began to go along as we talked about this particular event And inevitably, the conversation went to, well, of course, they would have made a quilt to remember all of the dead because effeminate males would, of course, sew. Now, if we have any history at this point, we would feel rather poorly about making jokes about people sewing in the names of their loved ones, regardless of what particular sin they were caught up in or the tragedy that these consequences of sin is death, which we all face. And their separation. I don't recall anybody being terribly offended by a generalization of the effeminate nature of gay men and the likelihood that they might sow to remember their loved ones. Genuine love. It is a sympathetic consciousness and a desire to alleviate it. And it is not defined, at least in the text in Hebrews, as for those who are without sin. That wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. If Jesus was just compassionate towards those who were without sin, we wouldn't necessarily need a high priest, and we certainly wouldn't need someone who came, became a human being, and went through and had compassion on people that he did not follow in their own sins. He was tempted yet without sin, which means Jesus didn't have to experience the the actual feeling or the emotion, but he chose to engage in the, the grieving, 
Whether it is Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, which was about to nail him to the cross because he knew that the consequences of their sin was 70 AD. And the destruction of Jerusalem at a level of horror and significance. My family, uh, my parents and my two brothers are in Israel or they just left. Uh, and they went to Masada. And we were talking about, you know, again, that was the last throes of that revolution. It took three years for the Romans to finally destroy that fortress, that old uh, summer palace of Herod's up on a bluff that nobody could reach. The Romans, being somewhat motivated, took three years to build an earthen ramp so that they could run enough soldiers up. And the last acts of those rebels, of course, was suicide. And Jesus, knowing all of this, and the horror of those last moments weeps even though they were going to strip him naked and nail him to a cross. Compassion doesn't start with, do you deserve it because you reach a certain level of my view of competency or sinlessness. And then there's the desire to do something about it. And to act. In the midst of the challenge of, of compassion uh, and sympathy, uh, a new word has arisen in our uh, conversations. We use the word empathy a lot. Uh, and uh, scholars note that this is a rather new word. Uh, it was probably created and became popular uh, since psychoanalytical uh, uh, and the whole Freud and Jung and all of these guys, which many of brilliant guys. Empathy is the idea that I can theoretically understand that you're going through a rough time. I don't actually emotionally engage in it per se. I can recognize that you may be going through a difficult time, but it takes one step back from sympathy. Well, what is sympathy? What does this word here in the Greek mean that makes it richer and deeper than the word empathy? comes from two uh, roots, of course. Uh, the first is sim, which is together. See, now notice there's no sim in empathy. There's no together in it. I don't identify with. I don't take on your flesh and your blood the way Christ did. I don't see myself as you and you as me. And therefore, I can't make jokes about your loved ones dying and you sewing a quilt. I can grieve. I can recognize that same-sex attraction is not the way that God originally designed humanity. And yet in the fall, it is a reality for many people, just as my sins and addictions and weaknesses and anxieties are a consequence of the fall that must be ministered to by the compassion and sympathy of our God. I can identify in a deeper way, not just simply there, but by the grace of God, go I, but truly and really, I have no idea why I don't have Epstein-Barr. And I don't know why one of my sisters in Christ has to wrestle with an illness. And it's not just enough for me to be empathetic. What does it mean for us to be sympathetic and compassionate towards one battling cancer or grief or addiction, or the consequences of abuse that seem more prickly 
to be near. So sympathy has first together, right? So Christ has sympathy with us because he actually became flesh and blood. And we hold so closely to that in our orthodoxy. He became flesh and blood, made it himself to matter, and still is. Again, we we celebrate every Ascension Sunday that it is not simply that Jesus was and then was resurrected in some glorified body and then left that so that he could be with the Father, but he took glorified humanity into the presence of the Father in a way that had not been done before. Us, our stuff, taken into the throne room of grace. He sympathized. He did not stay apart, but he became a part. We are together. You and your Savior are together sharing the same substance now in this material world. And then pathos. Empathy has the pathos part of it too. It's an emotional response. It allows me to engage. They are our feelings, not simply yours. They are your griefs and my griefs. It is we suffer. Hence all of the body language in Scripture. We know that when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. Sympathy when it is our body, doesn't seem terribly compassionate. What does it mean then for me to increasingly think of you as me so that I am sympathetic to what you're going through because it is my own body that is suffering? Not just the knucklehead who can't financially plan. Not just the person who didn't finish their degree. Not just the person who is sick with something that... I don't know how to interact with because it affects their mind or their body in such a way that it's just uncomfortable for me to be around. Fill in the blank. Sympathy is together sharing emotion. It is the conscious choice in compassion to choose to engage with your grief and your need. God has compassion on his people. And so it's richer than empathy. I don't mean to say that that word has no place. I've got to be careful because I am far more fond of empathy than I am sympathy. I can be empathetic with a lot of people. It just doesn't take a whole lot. But gosh, to engage in sympathy. In its best sense, in its biblical sense, not patronizing, but connecting and caring for. We can't engage in human relationships in a fallen world. God knew he wanted to model what it would take to restore relationships by becoming like us, by sharing the flesh and the burden, by enduring the illnesses and the betrayals of friendships and all of the things that make life here so difficult as human beings And yet he did it without sin. It doesn't mean he didn't face the temptation or feel the exhaustion at the end of the day or the betrayal of his friends. His response was compassion 
because he sympathized with us, because he bore our flesh. He knew what it was like to have tired feet and worn out hands. He worked, he grieved, he built, he ate, he celebrated. It is the scandal, in one sense, of the gospel, how lavishly God engaged in, how completely God engaged in the human experience. Paul can't get over it. The writer of Hebrews can't get over it. It, They keep rehearsing the joy of the incarnation and the promise of what that means for the resurrection. So Christ, King, Jesus, which again, his name is Joshua, right? Aramaic version of that, which means Yahweh's salvation. So King, God's salvation is our high priest, right? That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. The king. So we're reuniting priesthood and kinghood and kingship again. Hadn't been done since Moses, effectively. That God's salvation is manifested in our high priest and his work on our behalf. Compassionately, sympathetically, standing before the Father on our behalf. Not because everything we do is justifiable, but because he understands the temptation without ever condoning the sin. So whom, going back to our original question, to whom do we do good? Well, Proverb lays a lot out about foolish people and not engaging foolish people when they're really excited about doing a foolish thing because they might take you down with them. It's not to say that there isn't discernment and wisdom in the midst of our compassion. But I will say simply for myself, I have a history and a tendency, and perhaps it's in the culture in which I was raised, to want to talk about who all the people are that I don't have to be compassionate for first. To list the lazy. To list those who are, for whatever reason, simply getting their just desserts. What if we start from the basis of realizing that thankfully those in Christ are not getting what they deserve and that exposing ourselves to some of the travails of being compassionate with those who might very well not respond with great thanks to our sympathy and compassion and to those we may have to, as Jesus did, weep over the consequences of a decision that someone we've come to care for as they drive over some metaphorical cliff and harm themselves and others. But I don't think what Proverbs is saying is that we are to withdraw from the fool, withdraw from the wicked in such a way that we no longer have opportunity to extend compassion and the grace of God. 
I believe, because we have a great high priest, that our first disposition is one of sympathy and compassion for the other period. And that through the wisdom and time and interaction, how that compassion is manifested will be determined by the fact that we are not simply to be welcome mats, walked over. That we do take the wisdom of Scripture in discerning how best to engage with folks to make sure that we don't perpetuate or help them or aid them or subsidize them in their sin. All of that wisdom is there. But how do we cultivate first that sympathy and compassion of the great high priest that when we engage in that, that we feel the pain of even their foolish and wicked choices, that we grieve with them, even if they're not, at that point, wise enough to know that they should be grieving. So a couple of things. Sympathy. I would encourage that we need a renaissance in sympathy and an understanding of what that word means in the richness of those two great words and why it's important that none of the translations I could find wanted to improve on sympathy. That even the newer scholars who are doing a great job of trying to get in culture and history and text to these translations, sympathy is the best word because of its origin of the together and the emotion. And that moving us to a right understanding of compassion. So what a couple of illustrations. I don't know why Iris is in the room. She always like, well, give me a specific illustration. Like I'm lousy at specific illustrations. Then I come up with some and she leaves. What if, and I'm trying to practice this myself. What if I took time out of my day and at least offered the opportunity to sit down next to somebody with a sign at the exit to Fred Myers asking for help. Just to get to know them as a human being. To take 10, 15 minutes out of my day and just talk to them. To extend a measure of dignity that I would want for myself. It's always hard to make eye contact with those folks. What is it to be compassionate to folks in that sort of circumstance? Could Sympathy simply start with learning enough about them so that their emotions I might somewhat share and be compassionate. I know some of us have done this through safe families and we did it when we, we had opportunity to serve uh, through uh, the women's shelter. And it was amazing to hear some of the stories and how much sympathy did very quickly come to our hearts as we heard about the tragedies of women abandoned after 20, 30 years of marriage for a newer model. And we found out that in Oregon, that the most likely person to slip below the poverty level is a woman over 40 who is divorced. Many of them who don't have another degrees and are more at risk when their husbands head off to do whatever they've decided to do. There are families finding themselves outdoors and living in cars. I noted at the lead team meeting, I'm just seeing more folks 
in cars that they're clearly living out of. Can I slow down enough to talk? They may say, leave us alone. Fine. No harm, no foul. But am I willing to talk to them? Is there anything in my demeanor that would suggest that I am? That would begin an understanding that we together are suffering some of these things. Friends, uh, just an encouragement that was given to me years ago um, about particularly single men and women is that those who've lived as singles for many, many years uh, often don't get touched as much as others. So hugging someone, uh, good, gentle affection and kindness, being sensitive to and hearing from, and relaying caring to hear from our friends. We talk a lot in our premarital counseling about loved languages. That is in no small part gaining sympathy for the other in the way that they receive and give love. And recognizing and being compassionate enough to say, that matters and I want to receive love from you. It may not be a way that I normally receive love. I want to know how to recognize that, that I might receive it well. And I also want to be able to say, I want to give you love the way in which you receive it. If we nurture that in our marriages, is it not more likely that we will find ourselves able to do that in our friendships, in our compassion for those who find themselves in economic and difficulty straits when there is so much bounty, when we are at such a low level of unemployment, when there's no reason, one might argue, to be in need. We foster sympathy within the body of Christ by listening and hearing one another's stories, by encouraging it in our friendships, in our mentoring, and in our marriages by giving and feeling in line with who people are. Was that a, it was close to practical application, wasn't it? Each one of us, as we experience the individual reality of what it means to be loved by God and to know that we have a personal Savior who stands before the Father on our behalf, comes and builds through the Spirit the opportunity to begin to extend that to the other. The gospel answers the question, how can I risk opening myself to another human being? It answers it by reassuring of us who we are in the Spirit because of the love of Christ and the will of the Father. They had compassion on us. We stand without fear, wholly loved, co-heirs with Christ. Maybe the resources for compassion are there. Maybe my opportunity to be sympathetic can come from a high priest who sympathizes with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. We ask that you would, again, encourage us. Lord, it is a hard calling. Some of us feel everything for the people around us. We ask that those who have those sensitive spirits might be strengthened in 
doing so wisely and caringly in your spirit. And those of us who are not sure others have emotions, Lord, give us a tenderness. We pray that in all the richness of who you have created, that you've given us wisdom in the spirit, that we might be sympathetic and compassionate well, in line with who you are. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.